Good to be in a warm, dry place and have a banana and some fruit, something to eat, a little hot coffee. One of you was coming in a moment ago. You went back out to your car to get your coffee cup. I was so glad for that. I think without our coffee, most of us would have our heads in our fruit bowls this morning, falling asleep. Jesus and caffeine is a good combination. Good enough. You know, uh, everybody in this room uh, probably in some way has met Jesus Christ or knows something about him. When his name is mentioned, certain things come to your mind about who you think he is or who you think he might be. And uh, in every single case, uh, every one of us tends to, when we hear who Jesus is, the loftier that we think that he is, the stronger this tendency is, to shape him in your own image. And uh, as C.S. Lewis said, we have a tendency to want to tame him in some ways, this, this, this lion after the tribe of Judah, because he's scary. We've already seen that uh, last week when we looked at Jesus calming the storm. The disciples were no longer afraid of the storm. They were afraid of Jesus. They were terrified. They said, who is this? And the more you get to know about Christ and the more powerful he appears to you, the more your tendency to try to tame him, to get him under control, because it's kind of scary to have someone that powerful in your boat. We do this in so many different ways. I guess it's, you know, it's probably easier to notice it in somebody else's life rather than your own, but we can all think of instances where friends who are kind of tired of a marriage and, and uh, wanted out of it and also profess to be followers of Christ. And, I mean, we've all heard it. We've heard ourselves say it, some of us, these rationalizations that surely Jesus would understand. Jesus doesn't want us to be unhappy or whatever the language we may, we may use. It's just, what it is, it's an attempt to tame Jesus and to make him someone that we can get along with the way that we are. Or we'll do it with respect to our lifestyles. Uh, maybe if we're single, you know, we're dating somebody, and we think, well, you know, everybody's doing it, and after all, if it's two consenting adults and you love each other, and why not? And we just tame Jesus again. Or it may have to do with our use of material things in this world. You know, I worked hard for that, and... Uh, and I, and, I, and I went to college and graduate school for that. I, and I, you know, I, I deserve to be able to spend it the way I want to instead of thinking of our possessions as really belonging to somebody else and looking at the poor the way that Jesus Christ looked at the poor. So once again, we just tried to tame him by ignoring part of what he said in his word. Or as I've uh, thought about it myself and, and observed cultures, not only here but in other parts of the world, I find that every culture seeks to tame Jesus and to co-opt him and make him one of them. Well, there's a sense, of course, in which he is one of us. He, that's what the incarnation is all about, but we have to be very careful in our tendency to be ethnocentric and not to make him just one of us. Uh, I guess one of the more vivid illustrations of this would be some of the early Jesus movies, obviously produced by European-Americans, and here's this Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes. You go, what is that? You know, Jesus was a Jew. He certainly had dark hair and brown eyes, you know, more than likely, and darker skin than what's on the screen there. But, but we just do it thoughtlessly. Jesus just looks just like me. You know, even in my sin, he's going to cooperate with me. And, uh, and we certainly find it 
in our attitudes about race, we find ourselves very ethnocentric and that we, even without thinking about it, we put ourselves first and, and our family first and our tribe first and our, our group first. And then we find ways to co-opt Jesus in it. Everybody does that. Everybody does it. And you and I tend to do it. And part of the, part of the idea of growing up and maturing in Christ is to get more and more in touch with what, whatever it is in me that tends to do that. Uh, confessing it, admitting it, and then asking God for help to overcome it. And that, that's part of what maturity is. Well, the disciples, I mean, to our great comfort, uh, did every stupid thing that we could possibly think about. And it, it is comforting to find that these knuckleheads are guys just like us. Now, you can tame them pretty easily. Uh, they are just like us. Jesus is not, but they are. And they did the same thing. They they tried to co-opt Jesus into their pre-existing religious ideas. And everybody does that. The religion your grandmother taught you or your mama taught you. When you, when you start learning about Jesus, you assume he's exactly what your mama told you. Uh, was good and, and evil. You know, that he's good. And then you find out, well, I have to change my ideas of what good is. The disciples were the same way. The disciples uh, were very ethnocentric. They had very strong religious ideas. And they were taught by their mamas. Don't you ever go on the other side of this lake, the Sea of Galilee. We live over here on, on the west side, and you're to stay on the west side. Because over there on the other side, it is evil. Those people are bad people. And they're not, they're not believing people. And I've even heard there's demon worship over there. And I don't want to ever catch you boys alive over there. Now, they've been taught that all their lives. And any decent human being would assume that good advice your mama gave you would be exactly what Jesus would teach you too. Until you meet Jesus. And you find that there was one more way you tried to co-opt him. And I'd like for us to look at this text, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And let's look at some OJT, on-the-job training, that Jesus gave his disciples who tended to co-opt him into their way of thinking and their way of life. Verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. 
He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, the first thing the disciples had to learn, the first thing we have to learn, I suppose, is that there is no place Jesus will not go. The reason I say that is that he... It says in the text, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Notice, first of all, Jesus goes to foreign places. It says he went across the lake. He went across the lake. And when you go across the lake, you go to a foreign land governed by a different person with different cultures, different religious presuppositions, a different spiritual demographic. And it can be really strange. We all tend to want to stay in a place with which we're familiar. But here Jesus was taking them to a place with which they were not familiar because, as I said, I'm sure their mamas told them over and over again, don't want to ever see you over there. There are these unclean pigs and these unclean people and even unclean spirits over there, and you're to be a clean boy, so don't go over there. And Jesus shows the disciples that there is no place he will not go. And therefore, there's to be no place we will not go. Everything about this place across the lake is strange. It's not only the pig farm, which makes it a strange and alien place, because as you know, the Jews would not even touch pigs, much less eat them. But it was a place where even names for God were strange. When we a little later in the text where uh, the demon speaks out and the demoniac speaks out and makes reference to God, he calls him Jesus and son of the Most High God. And uh, that language, Most High God, if you just take your concordance out and look that up in your Old Testament, as well as New, you'll find that's typical language for the Gentiles. That's not Jewish language. That's Gentile language. Everything about it is strange. Even their name for God. It just is so strange and seemingly evil, it probably is the best thing to stay away from there, unless you meet Jesus, of course, and there is no place that He will not go. He'll take you to foreign places. I remember um, when I was uh, a uh, just uh, out of college and had my first job, and I was a steel salesman in Boston, Massachusetts, and I became a Christian, actually, in New England. Isn't that something? A kid who grows up in a Southern Baptist church in the South goes to Boston to get converted. I don't know. I think God's maybe telling us something, but uh, I remember... Uh, going every year to the missions conference at Parker Street Church right there uh, across a little side street from the Common, Boston Common, if you've been there. And uh, 
In years past, there was a man named uh, Harold John Ockengay, Dr. Harold John Ockengay, who was pastor there from 1936 to 1969. And uh, when he went there, that church had a foreign missions budget of $6,000, 1936. When he left in 1969, it was $600,000, which in today's dollars would be significant. And so through the years, they became very missionally oriented. And uh, uh, Dr. Ockengay was a very formal sort of person. He looked like a Boston Brahmin. He really wasn't. He was from Pittsburgh. But he faked it great. And uh, he was an intellectual. He was a a real leader among uh, evangelical Christianity during the middle part of the century. Uh, Very close friends with Dr. Graham and other people in in the country who were leading sort of a revival of faith in Christ during those years. And Dr. Ockengay uh, would preach, of course, every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. And uh, after one Sunday night service, one of his trustees came to him and said, Dr. Ockengay, are you aware of what's going on just across Park Street, the little side street there, just across the street over in the Boston Common on Sunday nights? He said, well, no. And Dr. Ockengay wouldn't know. He wouldn't even bother himself going over there, I'm sure, naturally. But uh, And they said, well, some really... You know, we have a lot of young people over there, and they're just doing all kinds of things. And So he said, well, just take me over there and show me. So it was in the evening, and they crossed Park Street and went over to the Boston Common with a flashlight, and they found all kinds of things happening behind the bushes and in front of the bushes, and all kinds of things happening. And Dr. Ockengay just felt deeply convicted. He said, we're going to do something about that. So the next Sunday night, after the evening service, uh, he just asked his trumpeter in his, in his uh, music department, to go over there and get a, a big oak table. And some deacons carried the oak table across there. The trumpeter came with him. They put the oak table down right in the middle of the common. And he told the trumpeter to stand up on that oak table and start playing. This guy was really good. He started to draw a crowd. And after a crowd came around, then Dr. Ockengay said, okay, you can get down now. And then he stood up on the oak table and started to preach the gospel. And during those years, or during those months, Many, many people came to know Christ through the little rallies in the Boston Common after the Sunday evening service because Dr. Ockengay was taken seriously just going across the street to a place that was not very churchified. It was an alien sort of place. But he decided to go over there and do something about it. Well, that little band of people back in in the late 40s became the core group of people who got involved in the Billy Graham crusade that took place in the 50s in Boston, which was very, very well known during those days. And uh, after the California crusade where Graham was really launched, he came to the East Coast and hooked up with Dr. Ockengay, and that little group became the core group of the great Billy Graham crusade in Boston in the 50s. But it all started right there in the common with one man deciding to go across the street. Well, after this had been happening for a few months, uh, Dr. Ockengay noticed some Boston uh, city police cruisers traveling around the common during that time and just looking on. And pretty soon they came up to Dr. Ockengay and asked him if he had a license to be preaching the gospel over in the common. He said, well, no, I didn't know I needed such a thing. Well, yeah, you got to have permission from the city council. So he goes to the city council and they turn him down. So what Dr. Ockengay did was the church was right across the side street, the narrow street from the common. So he just had his deacons, his deacons were very busy people, he had his uh, deacons build a wrought iron balcony on Park Street Church. And after the Sunday evening service, Dr. Ockengay, it was, he'd just go right upstairs where the balcony was, 
and go out to the little window and crawl out of it, get on that iron wrought iron balcony and this little wrought iron lectern that was welded onto it and he had preached the gospel across the street right there. And it was really charming to me to go back to Park Street. Just I preached there in January of this past year. And as you enter uh, Park Street Church, right there on, on uh, Tremont, uh, right near the common, and you get ready to go in the front door and you look up, there's a wrought iron balcony with a little pulpit on it. Dr. Rockingay said, you know, we can't ask our missionaries to do in Bangkok what we won't do in Boston. I suppose we could say we can't ask our missionaries to do in Mumbai what we won't do in Memphis. And so this is all what Jesus teaches us, that the places that seem strange and alien and foreign, even in your own city, maybe it's just across the street, are the very places where Jesus is likely to take you if you're a disciple of his. You know, we, we, just a moment ago, we heard about an opportunity, Calvary Rescue Mission, Memphis Union Mission. Well, that's two of many missions in Memphis in which we can be involved. But I just, I just want to encourage every single man here, you find some mission that takes you across the street with your money, across the street with your time, across the street with your prayers, across the street with your body, getting physically involved, so that we are going where Jesus would go, where he here incarnate on this earth again. And he will be one day. And we'll all be surprised. And we'll all be stripped of our tendency to co-opt him or tame him when he comes back. But now we have that tendency. And Jesus is here to take us to foreign places. He goes to unclean places. The region of the Gerasenes, unclean. Everything about it is unclean. I can just imagine Peter on the way across the lake having very conflicting emotions in that boat. Remembering what his mama told him. You know, and feeling a little guilty, you know, for breaking his mama's words to him. And, of course, I'm speculating. There's nothing in the Bible that says Peter's mama told him that. But I just imagine every mama did because that was a very unclean place. It was a very unspiritual place, a very wicked place. It, you know, kind of like, well, we won't say, but it was like going to a very wicked place. And so Peter's having these conflicting emotions. And then he gets out over on the other side. Peter had probably never been there before in his life. And he was just feeling very strange and alien and probably feeling kind of dirty. Like this, you know, the Haaretz, the land, is itself considered sacred. And when you are in Gentile land and come back to the holy land, you have to shake your sandals out to get rid of the dirt from the unholy land. So here's Peter. His sandals have been on holy ground just a few moments ago. Now he's going to get off on dirty ground, on unholy land. And he gets out and he feels already a little funny. And then he realizes, good heavens, we're on a pig farm. <laughs> just, to, just to aggravate the whole thing. He not only took us, Jesus, this rabbi, not only has taken us to the, to the land of the Gentiles, but we land on a pig farm. And I can just see Peter, you know, getting out of his boat and dodging the pig poop, you know, and not wanting to touch anything, you know. And, and then, then it starts to dawn on him, because I think Peter was a Presbyterian. Uh, if... <laughs> It starts to dawn on him, you know, he's thinking, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus does some unconventional things. And sometimes, frankly, if you want to know the truth, he embarrasses us. Uh, But he's not stupid. And uh, so Jesus is taking us to a place that I was hoping this whole mission would avoid. And I feel very unclean and awkward and out of place here. But you have to give it to Jesus. He's really smart. I mean, this is a pig farm in the land of the Gentiles. But... Notice, gentlemen, this is a wealthy 
Pig farm. Uh, Jesus is going to use Presbyterian missiology. It's called the trickle-down approach. Uh, we're going to start with the leaders in the community. Uh, you know, like the mayor here who, who ends up in boxing matches. You know, <laughs> by the way, if you're not from Memphis, my mayor's tougher than your mayor. I hope he beats us too, uh, Joe Frazier tonight. That's just going to be great. Uh, anyway, Peter lands there. And uh, he's thinking, Jesus is smart. He's going to community leaders. And Peter starts to cheer up a little bit. You know, okay, okay, okay. So I had to dodge some pig poop here. But, but this guy I'm following, he is smart. He's going to start it with a community leader. And then if he leads him to Christ, if, to himself, if he becomes a disciple, then, of course, everybody underneath that rich man's influence will also become a believer. Peter's having all these good Presbyterian thoughts go through his head. You know, Peter's thinking, hey... Yeah, okay, so the guy's a Gentile, but hey, somebody we can deal with, probably educated, you know, probably somebody you can reason with, probably somebody that would uh, add a little uh, prestige to the group. When all of a sudden, out of the woods, (laughs) Jesus' first convert. And once again, Peter is stumped. He tried to co-opt Jesus into his ways of thinking, and Jesus will not cooperate because the second point you pick up in verses 2 through 5, there is no person. Jesus will not help. A man with an evil spirit came out of the cemetery to meet him. And we learn here that Jesus helps the unclean. He helps the crazy. The rabbis taught there were four criteria for insanity. Running around at night. Some of you are insane. (laughs) Running around tombs at night. If any of you are doing that, the rabbis have a word for you. Tearing one's own clothes and tearing up gifts that were given to him. These were definitions of insanity. This man matched them all. All the criteria. And not only that, he was dangerous. Jesus helps the dangerous. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Look at this. Out of the woods comes not some wealthy businessman that's going to make the church look better. Out of the woods comes a naked man screaming at the top of his lungs who has irons hanging off his arms and his legs and who has cuts all over his body. I don't know how you feel about altar calls, but some of you Baptists, if you had an altar call this Sunday morning and this was the first guy down the aisle, I know what you'd be thinking. I'm at least getting myself a new preacher. He's drawing the wrong kind of people over here. Or I'm getting myself a new church, but I'm getting out of here. This is crazy. And it would be. Crazy. And sometimes that's exactly the kind of people that Jesus is going after. The kind of people that we're offended by. The kind of people that make us want to find another church. And another preacher who will attract a different sort of person. This guy is the picture of the modern man. Because he is completely free to do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to wear clothes, he wears them. If he doesn't, he doesn't. If he wants to be bound by the civil structures of his age, he's bound by them. If he doesn't, not even iron can bind him. If he wants to beat people up, as we're told in, I think it's Luke's version of this story, He just beats them up anytime, anywhere he wants to. 
When he gets through beating them up, he beats himself up. He just does whatever the hell he wants to do. And that's exactly what he does. Whatever the hell he wants to do. The picture of the free man. Here's the secular man at the conclusion, the end of the day. Free. Free to be completely self-destructive. Free to be completely outrageous and destructive of everything around him. And it's that free man, crazy man, demonic man, that Jesus comes to help. He helps the unclean. He helps the crazy. He helps the dangerous. And fourthly, He helps us. And sometimes we're the very ones who think that we have gone outside the pale of the love and the care and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save for a number of reasons. Sometimes we just think we don't matter. Sometimes we think, well, I would have mattered if I hadn't committed that series of sins that surely has disqualified me from any usefulness as a disciple of this Jesus Christ. And Jesus is showing us by this example and many others in the Scriptures, but this is a classic one, there's not much of anything that can disqualify you. And we do struggle with low self-esteem. You know, the guy who went to the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist said, what's your problem? He said, I got, I got an inferiority complex. He said, okay, I'll test you. Come back next week. The guy came back next week and said, well, what, doc? What have I got? And he said, well, you don't have an inferiority complex. He said, I've tested you. You're just downright inferior. And, uh, and the man said, well, I'd like a second opinion. And the psychiatrist said, okay, you're ugly, too. <laughs> And, you know, those are the kind of messages sometimes that we get. Uh, and that's what we think of ourselves. We've, we've not only heard those messages, but we believe them. And we just flat disqualify ourselves as being followers of Jesus because surely we're just too bad to be included in his gang. But what we find here is that there's not only is there no place Jesus will not go, but there's no person Jesus will not help. Is there some place you won't go? Is there some person you won't help? I have to admit to you, there's some people that I don't naturally, I'm not naturally drawn to. And everything in me says, well, somebody else will help them. And I've just tried to co-opt Jesus. And to make Him a Jesus who lets me just stay just the way I was. Instead of becoming like He is. There's no place He will not go. And there's no man He won't help. Well, how's this encounter going to go? Well, in verses 6 through 17, we find thirdly that there is no power Jesus will not overcome. He overcomes the demons. And you'll see a series of realities here in these verses 6 through 13, where he shows that he overcomes, first of all, the demons themselves. The demons, first of all, if you'll notice this demonic man in verse 6, he comes and he runs to Jesus and falls on his knees in front of him. And he acknowledges him as the son of the most high God. It looks as though something very similar to worship is going on here. But I want you to notice this is not worship. This is a mere acknowledgement of the power of Jesus Christ. The demons acknowledge Jesus' power. They don't like him in his lordship, but they can't ignore him, nor can they deny him his lordship. So it is with hatred and fear of torture in their hearts that they acknowledge that He is the Lord. And we are told at the end of the day that 
Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not just the converted, but the demons must confess it because that's who he is. So Jesus, first of all, causes the demons immediately to acknowledge that he is in charge. And they'll try to manipulate him. They'll try to plead with him. They'll try to do business with him. But they had no choice but to do business with him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Secondly, you'll notice they quake at his power. Swear to God that you won't torture me. What do they mean here? What do they mean by torture? Well, we find later on what they mean. They beg not to be sent to hell. Now, I don't know how this, this strikes you, but I remember years ago, the first time I started thinking about this text and its meaning, <clears throat> I, I, I wondered in my mind, why would they beg not to go to hell? I thought demons felt perfectly at home at hell. I thought that was their home. Gentlemen, I want you to notice that hell in all of its misery is hell even to demons. If demons quake at the thought of going to hell, what must it be like for a human being to be there? Not even a demon wants to be in hell. Even a demon as a parasite lives off the common grace of God in creation. They want to stay on top of the ground. They don't want to be in hell. They want to stay in the realm of God's common grace, we call it, where the sun shines on the evil and on the good and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. He wants to stay in the realm where he can enjoy some of God's favor even though he hates him. He doesn't love him as a being, but he loves what he can get out of him. He's constantly trying to manipulate and suck life out of God. The demons do not want to be in hell. And I'll promise you, no human being would ever want to be there. So, God causes them to quake. And then the demons cannot help but obey Jesus' power. For we find in, in verse 8, is it? Uh, let's see. Yeah, verse 8, Jesus had said to him. So, in the pluperfect, I guess it is there. He had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. So that means that Jesus started this whole thing. It was a Jesus initiative. He had said to him, that's the reason they came running. He had said, come out of the man. And they knew they had to come out of the man. But before they come out of the man, they're going to come down and bow and beg him not, not to torture them. So they're under his command and they know it. They have to do exactly what he says. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And they use his name, this Gentile way of addressing him. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, they say. They're using his name. Why do they address him? Well, they, of course, can't help but address him as the Most High. But why do they even use his name? Well, because you'll find in old rabbinic material around that, that was, uh, of course, was put in writing after this time, but reflects the oral tradition of this time. The rabbis taught in demonic exorcisms that you had to get a hold of the name of the Spirit. And when you get the name of the Spirit, you gain control. And you can see how this would be true because when Adam and Eve named the animals, it was because Adam was the crown of creation. He was the vicegerent of God Himself. So Adam was given the powers of a king by being able to name everything under him. 
And so being able to name something is to have power over it. And the demons, you see, were doing this very same thing. They came to Jesus and named Him. Because the, the very heart of wickedness is to know there is a God. And to know that Jesus is the Son of God. And then simply try to manipulate Him for what you can get out of Him for your own evil purposes. That would be the height of evil. And every single man tends to do it. It's demonic. They come to Him and bow to Him. Counterfeiting worship. Only seeking to manipulate Him. And they call His name. But notice what Jesus does. What's your name? This is a power encounter of the first order. And Jesus is demanding to know the name. And the demon has no choice but to say the name is Legion. The name of a military unit that had 6,000 soldiers in it, suggesting probably 6,000 demons. He could even have said, our name is Legion, for we are many. And now Jesus takes full control of that demonic power and that demonic spirit because the demons have to obey Jesus Christ. They beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So they're trying to grab his name and they are trying to get him to keep them in the area. Once again, this whole idea, those of you maybe have read some things in this area, but it seems indeed that Demons do tend to be territorial. They, they don't want to be in hell. They'd rather be here. And they get lay, kind of lay claim to a certain area. When I was in, in India last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the missionary with whom I was spending my time, Raju, Dr. Raju Abraham, suggested that he could see that in his own area. He said there are, of course, 300 million gods in India. But he said there are some that are very dominant. And he said, in every region of India, you'll find a god who is most dominant. Uh, you know, maybe Vishnu or, or uh, Krishna or some other god of the 300 million. And he said, he said, I've charted this before. I've gone through various parts of India. And you'll find that the, uh, with the pantheon of gods, there's always one dominant one and they have a territory. And he said, I really think, he said, that this uh, reflects the sort of territorial uh, tendencies of demonic spirits. And, of course, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, didn't he, that he didn't say demons were nothing. No, he said that behind them, he didn't say idols were nothing. He said behind the idols actually were demons. So the problem with idolatry is that behind the idols themselves, the idols are dumb nothings. Uh, you know, money's a dumb nothing. Now, a new car is a dumb nothing. But behind the dumb idol is the manipulation of demons, and they tend to be very territorial. So, uh, and that's interesting that he said that because I, I see that certainly reflected here in the text. They're saying, don't send us out of the area. You know, we've gotten used to the land of the Gerasenes. This is our home. We've made it, you know, we've kind of camped out here. We found a few people that we can, that we can indwell. And we, we feel right at home. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus appears to be the perfect English gentleman. Oh, all I said was to come out of the man. You want to come out of the man? You want to stay in the area? Well, let me just welcome you right into the area. I'm not, you have to stay? Of course, I'll be a good host. I'm, I'm not even a host. I'm a visitor here. Well, just come right on out. You see, it seems to be just the perfect English gentleman finding a way to find a good compromise. 
I want you out of the man. You want to stay in the area? Well, here, here's what we'll do. We'll just put you right in the pigs. You're unclean spirits, unclean pigs. Perfect fit. Just come right on. And so he looks to be very cooperative. But what you find out is that Jesus overcomes these demons. The demons are destroyed by Jesus' power because these demons, 6,000 of them apparently, go into 2,000 pigs. If my arithmetic is correct, that's three demons per pig. Now, folks, a pig is bad enough all by itself. You put three demons in a pig, you got yourself a problem. Yeah! You can just imagine 2,000 pigs screaming at the top of their lungs. And they just go off right to the edge of the cliff, right down the lake. And everybody's just sitting there with their hair blown back on their head, you know, with their eyes as big as golf balls, and wondering, what in the heck just happened here? Let me tell you what happened. Jesus only looks like He is meek and mild. He is meek, but He is not mild. He only looks like an English gentleman. But he just took perfect charge of those demons and sent them to hell. Let me tell you why I say that. He put the unclean demons and the unclean pigs. He stepped aside and those pigs went into the lake. Now let me tell you something about Hebrew cosmology. Not cosmetology. Cosmology. <laughs> Hebrew cosmology. I don't think Hebrew cosmetology was very advanced at that age. But, it, but I want you to know it really is now. <laughs> and we've been learning. Hebrew cosmology, uh, the abyss was the bottom of the sea. And you access the underworld through the bottom of the sea. You find this reflected in Isaiah and some of the Psalms where the Leviathan and other sea monsters, they come out of the abyss, you see. The, the fact that they come out of the sea means they're coming out of the lower regions. That's what, what makes them so terrifying. So this deep, mysterious sea down at the bottom of that must be where hell is. Do you see what Jesus has done? The demons have asked not to go out of the area. It looks like he grants their request. Yeah, he grants their request like a judo expert, takes their energy and slams them against the wall. They go into the pigs and he sends them into the lake. Luke actually uses the word abyss. And so what Jesus has done is simply confine them to the lower regions of hell itself. This is a major takeover a major exercise of the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ over the underworld. The tragedy over the last decade, for those of us who read some of the Peretti novels, you know, uh, Piercing the Darkness and other things like that. Some of you may, may remember those novels. Uh, you know, they, they were very popular and gained a lot of interest about how evil spirits work. And I, I only read one of them to get the idea of it. And the idea in the one I read was you've got Tal, T-A-L, who is the head of the angels. And you had the devil over here who's head of all the demons. And if we pray enough, that will arouse the angels and they'll come and fight the battle with the demons and control. But if we don't pray, then Tal and his angel ward is you know, under-resourced, under-power. And then that's, of course, when the demons come in and they take over. You have, so you, you have the power of good over here and the power of evil over here. You have the angels fighting for the good over here and fighting for your welfare over here. And you... And you have the demons over here trying to destroy you. And you better empower the powerful, good angels through prayer or you're going to be in a lot of trouble because the, the demons are over here. 
Gentlemen, you may be very confused about good and evil and the powers of the angels and the demons. And, of course, Peretti was very confused. But let me tell you who's not confused. The demons are not confused at all. They could only wish that they were equal with the angels and that a little lack of prayer would empower them. Here's what they know. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler of the heavens, the ruler of the earth, and the ruler of the underworld. And they're not over here on the side. They're down under His feet. That's what they know. So you might be very, con- very confused in your demonology, in your theology. But the demons are very good theologians and they know power when they see it. So I'm not worried about the evil one and all of his power over me by nature, taking me. Because the one who lives in me is greater than the one who happens to be in this world for the moment. He's not going to be here very long. But the Lord Jesus Christ is more powerful than he is. That's what the disciples had to learn that you can help any person, you can go to any place, because the Lord Jesus Christ will conquer any power that comes up against Him. All we do do is go in His name and trust in His power and not our own. This is what the disciples had to learn. We tend to try to co-opt Jesus Christ, but He takes the demons and consigns them to the underworld. Now, someone may say, how could Jesus think that He has the right to go over there on that alien pig farm in some other city, some other county, it's the, it's the Decapolis, the land of the ten cities, the Gerasenes. Jesus is a Jew. Why does he have to cross the lake, go over there and destroy some rich pig farmer's 2,000 pigs? Here's why. Jesus owns those 2,000 pigs. They're his. And he owns the land of the Gerasenes. And he owns the Gerasenes. And he owns the demoniac. And he owns the pig farmer. And he will do with them whatever he wants to do. He has the right because he owns it. The question is, what right do you have to take your, quote, possessions and use them in a way that is not in the interest of the one who actually owns it? That's the question. There's insanity for you. But what Jesus is showing us is true sanity. The one who owns it comes to cleanse it completely. Here's what Paul says in his letter to Titus about the purpose of Jesus Christ in Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. He came to purify us from all wickedness. This is a picture of what Jesus comes to do in every land. He comes to cleanse the land of His pigs, cleanse the land of His demons, and lay absolute claim to it and to purify it so that He might have a people who are eager to do His will. And that's His intention in every square inch of this universe. And that's the reason that when you go across the street, you're going across the street to the land of Jesus. No matter what the people across the street say, He made them. He owns them. And his purpose for their good is to take absolute control of their lives. So, Jesus shows these disciples there is no power he will not overcome. He not only overcomes the demons, he overcomes the demonic people. Look at the picture in verses 14 and 15. You find there that this man who was naked, who was a wild man, who was running about, who was destroying people, When they came from the village in verse 15, they came to Jesus. They saw this man. And what was he doing now? 
He had been possessed by the legion of demons. Now, what's he doing? Sitting there, dressed in his right mind. Jesus overcomes the demonic people. They submit to him. He's sitting there. He was at the control of the evil one. Now he is at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in bondage to the devil. He now is in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was free to do ever the hell he wanted to do. Now he is free to do the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he is really free because he's in bonds to Jesus Christ. He thought he was free when he was in bonds to the devil. There's secular freedom. It's bondage to the evil powers. The freedom that is real freedom indeed is freedom to be in bondage to the will of Jesus Christ. Number two, he's dressed. That We rejoin society. Jesus overcomes demonic people by having us become sociable again. The man decided to take on normal human conventions. So he didn't scandalize everybody around him. I'm sure he was nothing really great to look at anyway, what he had been through. So here he is, he's dressed. And people take on gospel manners when they meet Jesus Christ. Gospel demeanor. We're not interested in scandalizing and shocking people anymore. The whole nature of postmodern art is simply to shock. And in order to shock people, you have to go one more step beyond what you just did. And uh, what's his name? Borat. You know, I haven't seen the movie. Don't plan to. But the whole nature of the movie is just to take you beyond every convention you can possibly think of. Now, some of them, of course, we need to be be taken beyond cultural conventions. And we need to learn to laugh at ourselves. But some of the immorality that you have to be shocked with now in order to get just get a rise out of you is just outrageous. And someone who comes to Jesus, say you're sitting at his feet, they're in bonds to him, and they take on cultural conventions. They're not interested in that anymore. That's not art to them anymore. It's not even funny anymore because it's so destructive. So here's a man who's at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind. He regains his sanity. And Jesus takes our minds and He dispels the darkness and He brings light into our thinking so that now we can think clearly. We can think thoughts after Him. We can see the world the way He sees it. We can see the afterlife the way He's preached it. We begin to have light and to see things and to be illuminated and to have our intelligence lined up with reality. We get our sanity back when we come to Jesus Christ. He overcomes us. Thirdly, you'll notice he overcomes decent people. And sometimes the greatest resistance to Jesus Christ comes from decent people. It's often decent church people. In this case, it's decent Gentile people. In verse 15, you see they saw this man in that state. Now he's calm. He once was wild. Now he's submitted to Jesus. He once was dangerous. Now he's living, what would you would say, a socially helpful life. He was unclean and outrageous. And what's their reaction? 15b, they're afraid. Is this not strange that here a people who have been terrorized by this demoniac find them healed and now they're so afraid of Jesus Christ they actually ask Him to leave? Does this make any sense to you? We can find parallels, can't we? I want enough of Jesus to be socially acceptable. I want enough of Jesus to cut down the crime rate. I want enough of Jesus to cut the corruption out of our politics. But I don't want enough of Jesus for you to mess with my lifestyle. That's, that's the way it always is. Once again, remember the height of evil 
is to know the Lordship and the power of God and Jesus Christ in particular and to bow before him just to manipulate him to get what you want rather than to get what he wants. There's the height of evil. It's in every one of our hearts. And it's right here in the pages. They find they can't control him. He's uncontrollable. He's terrifying. Get him out of here. He's going to break the things that we hold dearly in our family traditions. He's going to break our religious conventions. He's going to mess up my business. Get him out of here. Jesus overcomes the decent people. Now, it looks as though in his response that once again, he's a perfect gentleman. Oh, you want me to leave? Okay. I never force myself on anybody. You ask me to leave? I'll leave. Here I go. Goodbye. See you. Looks like perfect gentleman would never force himself upon you. Would never do anything that would go against the will of the majority opinion. Looks like a perfect gentleman. But gentlemen, here's where we have another little surprise about Jesus. He's not exactly the way you may think he is. He is a gentleman, I suppose, in some sense of the word. But he's certainly not a gentleman in the sense we think of it in the English tradition. He has an insurrection of strategy. It looks as though he leaves, but he really doesn't. And here's why. In verses 18 through 20, you'll see there's no person Jesus will not use. It's interesting that in verse 18, when they were getting into the boat, the former demoniac begs Jesus. I don't know. He doesn't just ask him. He begs him to go with him. Well, that makes perfect sense. This guy has not made a whole... He has not been winning friends and influencing people. He's been destroying people, terrorizing people, he has a lot of debts to pay. And he's, he's probably a little bit afraid how this thing's going to play out now that he's clothed, lost his power to, to break iron chains. Those demons are gone. His life's been changed. He's weaker now physically. He's dressed. He's vulnerable. Jesus, I want to go with you and those elders. I want to be on the session too. I don't want to hang around this dirty place. I'm going to get clobbered. So we can understand why the demoniac would want to go with Jesus. Not just personal affection, but just even fear for his own life. It's very interesting, isn't it? Jesus said yes to the demons. He said yes to the decent uh, religious pagans. But he said no to his own brother that he just led to faith in himself. First time he says no. Does this make any sense? The guy asked to go in the boat. And Jesus did not let him. Why? Because Jesus plans to stay there. He has an insurrection of strategy. When he leaves a former demoniac who's been healed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is as though Jesus is there. He's got his representative there. His, his mercy ministry is going to go on. His ministry against the demonic world is going to go on. The proclamation of the kingdom is going to go on. You may think you got rid of Jesus. You ain't getting rid of Him as long as you have one agent who's there who's been changed by the power of Christ. And that's exactly what He's doing. There's no person He will not use, even this demoniac. He doesn't always grant our requests, requests because Jesus plans to have Him stay there. He acquiesces to the demons, seemingly, and He acquiesces to the garrisons, but He doesn't acquiesce to the former demoniac because He has an intention for him. And you pick it up in verse 19b. He immediately calls us to serve. And you'll notice, first of all, it's those nearest us. He says, go home to your family and tell them. 
So the first people that, that we go to are the people who know us. The people who know us the best. Why? Because those are the ones who will be most amazed at the change. Just think about what this, this man's mama must have thought about him. The many, many tears that she had shed over his life. And then the many years of embarrassment and humiliation because her son was a local crazy out in the cemetery who is terrorizing everybody in the community. And then her boy comes home clothed, making sense, speaking profound thoughts, talking about a man he had just met who had healed him. Gentlemen, this is absolutely astonishing. Of course his family was stunned. And let me tell you, if you've met Jesus, your family got stunned too. Some of you stunned your children. Some of you stunned your parents. It always is stunning when someone you know has had their life completely changed around. The strongest message you send is the changed life that you're living. And he sends them home to those nearest to him. And with what? With our personal testimony. Tell them what? He says, here's what I want you to tell them. I want you to give them the whole scope of redemption in biblical redemptive theology from Genesis to Revelation. No, no, no. Let's not do that. He says, I want you to go and give them the five points of Calvinism. Can you do it? Real quick. What is the five points of Calvinism? Here's what I want. The 33 chapters in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Spout them off. Give it to them in systematic order. That's what they need to have. And to do that, you will need three years of Bible college. No, let's see. You better go to graduate school. That's a pretty intelligent family you have. You better go to seminary. And get yourself educated. At least take a good EE course or a discipleship program. No. He says, go right now to your family and tell them what? Tell them something about which you are an absolute expert. What am I an expert about? You're an expert about what God has done for you. You're an expert about the mercy He has shown you in the midst of your own evil and wickedness and bondage to the things of this world and to your own self-destruction and to the destruction of others. And you've been released from that. You've been liberated. You're an expert about that. And you have your own graduate degree. You have your Ph.D. in mercy. And what God has done for you. And let me tell you, gentlemen, that's the most powerful story you've got. It's not the story of historical redemptive theology. It's not the story of the five points of Calvinism or your, your Baptist decrees or whatever it is you've got. The most powerful story you've got is how Jesus Christ, in His mercy, has had mercy upon me and has changed my life. And here's what it means to me. That man could tell him, I had 6,000 demons living in me. My life was a total disaster. And I don't know a whole lot about theology, but I know one I met who delivered me from the burden of my sin. That's what it is. And that's the most powerful story you have. I, uh, we're going to quit. 7.30. Uh, but let me just finish this the last uh, bit. Our obedience leads to praise. He did what the Lord said, and others were amazed. Did it work? Well, in Mark 7:31 through 36 you will find a little interesting story where Jesus is coming back through the Decapolis and people recognize Him. And let me ask you, why did they recognize Him? Because there was a crazy man who became a sane man who told people in his community where they could get help. And when Jesus came back through, they knew exactly where to go. And that's what happens with you. You tell your story. People know where they can get help. And when Jesus comes back through in your community, they know who to look for. That's exactly the way it works. So, we all have a tendency to co-opt Jesus. He will not be co-opted. But rather, He'll put us on on-the-job training and show us there's no place He will not go. There's no person He will not help. There's no power He will not overcome. And there's no person He will not use in the ministry, including you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the great power of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
who was born into this world as the very Son of God, who was baptized 30 years later and took on a public ministry of preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons, and who finally defeated the entire demonic world when he stood up on a cross with his hands in, uh, nailed to the tree and his hands nailed to the tree and crown of thorns upon his head and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He totally put to shame the public powers and authorities and made a spectacle of them, nailing them to the cross, triumphing over them by the cross. Lord, we thank you for this great triumph, which was sealed by the resurrection and will one day be totally consummated upon the return of that same Savior who will come and consign the evil world forever out of his and our presence. And we shall find the entire universe cleansed of his demons. Lord, for this great redemptive story that is our story, we thank you and praise you and ask that we, as we go out our way, that we will be your agents whose lives having been transformed are now the lives that put the world to amazement because they see your power in a human life. Go with us, Lord. Empower us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless you.